I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, to chapter 14. We'll continue in our verse-by-verse study with verses 32 through 42. Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. Sinclair Ferguson, commenting on this passage of Scripture, said this, Never in the Gospels does the humanity of Jesus shine through more clearly. Never in the Gospels does his holiness appear more forcefully. May the Lord help us to see that as we study the passage together. Let us read the word of God. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, as we take up your word, we tread upon holy ground. Lord, we get to view the heart of your Son. Father in heaven, help us to see him, help us to hear your word. Oh, Lord, minister to us through it. Subdue us through it. Rule over us and in us through your word, O oh Lord. Form us into what pleases you. O oh Lord, into the likeness of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.
Our passage this morning has been classically titled, The Agony of Christ. And within it, as you've just heard, it records the beginning of the immense suffering that Jesus underwent as he approached his coming death. Turmoil is a good word to describe what we have in these few verses. Inner agony as he considered what was surely coming, his death. And it weighed upon Christ fully. And he bore it up. And in these few verses, we have a unique opportunity to enter in with Jesus as he approaches the cross. To be with him where he is. To listen in on his desperate prayers. And the three things that the text outlines for itself, I want us to concern ourselves with this morning. I want us to consider the sorrowful Savior, verses 32 through 35. The sorrowful Savior. In verse 36, the submissive Son. The submissive Son. In verses 37 through 42, the disappointing disciples. The disappointing disciples. As we come into verse 32, we have Jesus on the back of his ministry. But specifically, his closing ministry. The ministry he had with his disciples in the upper room. Jesus taught them from the scriptures, and he taught them from the sacraments, both of the Old and the New Testament, from Passover and from the institution of the Lord's Supper. And while the teaching of Christ has much diversity in the upper room, there is a specific and dominating theme that goes over everything that he teaches. It penetrates it all through. And that is his coming death. As Jesus taught the scriptures, he spoke of the teaching of the prophets and their prophecy of the suffering Savior who in every way would be pierced through for the salvation of the people of God. From the Passover There is the Lamb that foreshadows the coming of Christ and even His ready appearing before the faces of His disciples in that room. How the Lamb was slain. How there were cups of wine. Even how the bread was broken in the Passover Seder. And then very, very clearly and pointedly In the Lord's Supper, as Jesus teaches his disciples this institution that is perpetual in the church, more clearly is his passion put on clear display, not only for his disciples, but for himself. It's an astounding thing, and I think if we for a second try to step into this passage, you might gather some of the weight of it all. Just think of it. 
You know that you will die within 24 hours and your entire task is to prepare your loved ones for your death so that in their grief they might not lose sight of the hope that your death brings. That's what Jesus has been doing. He's been shepherding. We've not seen Jesus broken in tears. We've not seen Jesus racked with agony, racked with grief. Could you do this? Could you? Confessedly, I don't think there's any possibility that I could muster an ounce of his strength to do what he did. He taught them and he loved them. His composure was maintained. But here in verse 32, that teaching is ended. They've left the room. The darkness of the night is closing in upon Jesus and the party of his disciples. And they do as they commonly did go to the Mount of Olives. And there, what do we have? We have Jesus taking them to the place of prayer, to a place that they knew. And look at the passage with me, because Jesus does some unique things. And I want you to see them. And I also want to say as we dig into the passage of Scripture that we could give four months, six months, two years to these few verses and never get all of it. You just can't plumb the heights of it or the depths of the love of Christ here. But let's look at the passage again. And I want you to take note of a few things. Verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. Specific portion of the Mount of Olives. And he said to his disciples, that is the remaining eleven, sit here while I pray. And then from that he further segregated the group and he called to himself the three that were most close to him. Simon Peter, James, and John, the apostle that he loved. And so the eight remained in one place and the three went on with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we read in verse 33 is that as he takes Peter and James and John, that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Now in the scriptures up until this point, You don't read anything like this. This should cause you to stop and take note. Firstly, that Jesus is isolating himself for this horrible hour. He lives the eight at a different place and takes the three, and eventually, as we're going to read, he even leaves the three. These are his friends, his confidants, his men-at-arms. These are the ones closest to him. And just like your friends, these friends were full of comfort. They were, I would have to say, better friends than those of Job, even though they're imperfect men, as we're going to read. But Jesus segregates himself. He leaves them in a place, and he leaves them with a task. He leaves them to watch, to sit, and to pray. 
but why does he leave them? I want to suggest to you this. He leaves them because this agony is something that he and he alone can bear. This is his road for them, not their road to be bore with him. This beginning in the hour of his suffering in the garden as his mind is encroached upon with the knowledge of all of the suffering, heavenly and physically, that he will endure. This is for him. They're not strong enough to tread upon the ground where the foot of the Savior will go. This is his. It's his alone. And so he goes forth. I do think it's an interesting thing that with The remaining three, this precious few, Jesus allows his emotions to be seen and to be seen clearly. And among our church, we have many men who have been in roles of leadership or who are presently in roles of leadership. Is this a thing that you do? Those whom you lead, do you show them the inner aspect of your hearts? Well, maybe not in your torment, maybe not in your trouble. Men look to you for strength. They look to you for resolve and for a steady hand in difficult and stormy seasons. A leader may not be out of control before those whom he leads. But yet Jesus is overwhelmed. He's there with them. And as you read the words that the ESV translates, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. That word that the ESV translates greatly distressed, it's an infinitive. It's a verb that's infinitive. It has all the weight imaginable placed within this one verb. And it's not only that he's greatly distressed, that's a wonderful translation, but it could also easily be translated he was entirely overwhelmed entirely overwhelmed he'd reached the upper limit of his resolve he'd reached the upper limit of his strength and what he was anticipating to suffer far outstretched the bounds of his mind and his humanity and in the weakness and frailty of his human flesh the son of God United with the fullness of humanity as the Son of Man. Was overwhelmed entirely by the greatness of what he would suffer. Whenever Luke describes the agony of Christ here in the garden, he records a very unique historical thing that Jesus in the midst of his agony sweated drops of blood. It's a very rare physiological circumstance called hematohydrosis, where in the midst of either physical or in this case mental anxiety or stress, that the blood vessels in our skin that surround our sweat glands, that in the grip of it, in all of its agony, they burst. And so... As the drops of sweat flow, they are intermingled with blood that just flows from the body without control. This is almost hard to get our heads around. 
to the agony of the sorrow of Jesus Christ our Lord. In verse 34, Jesus gives an expression to this as he describes what he feels to those who are closest to them. He says, my soul, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, verse 35, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. You know, I think as we come to this, everybody with a working mind that is even somewhat familiar with the biblical text, you know that Jesus is anticipating a gruesome death. And just the physical torment of what that would be would be enough for any person, man or woman, whoever it is, to be overwhelmed, to be taken entirely by the, the grip of the gruesome suffering. But whenever Jesus' legs trembled as he falls to the ground with an eyesight of his disciples, as Luke tells us, within a stone's throw, Jesus is in the grip of knowledge that has heavenly perspective and earthly awareness. You see, you and I interpret our own sufferings from only one perspective. We interpret it in our flesh, sometimes, yes, in our souls, but we don't interpret it from an internal perspective. We scarcely have the fortitude or wisdom to understand the external things that cause it or its eternal or external effects. But Jesus sees these things in the unity of his Two natures within one person, the God-man, knows with the wisdom of heaven. Firstly, he knows the depths of the hearts of men who sin against God. Why is that important? Because he has a clear view of all of the weight of all of the transgression and all of the guilt that will fall upon him. He sees it. He knows it with more weight than a mountain can muster to crush the heart, the mind, and soul of man. He sees it. The one who for all time has been guiltless sees the immensity of the guilt that will be placed upon him as he's condemned. What's more, he knows the righteousness of the heart of God with whom he is eternally unified, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He knows the law of God. He is its very author. He knows the righteous wrath of the Lord. He knows what the sin demands. He knows the greatness of it. And if any man ever feared God, in this very moment Christ feared him the most of all and trembled. And his legs failed. And the one who created man from the dust of the earth fell to his face upon the dust of the earth. In desperation. Racked with sorrow. Racked with pain. Through mind, body, and soul, the whole of Christ effected with the coming of his suffering for sinners. 
And why is this so important for us to look at and to see and to behold? Well, friends, it's because in this moment, in this hour, in this scene, Jesus sanctifies our sufferings. He does. In his flesh, he evidences a full experience of the worst human suffering available. How much more can any person feel than the fear of death? That is what grips him. The author of life saying, I will become the subject of death. You see, whenever we suffer, what do we feel? It's very common, isn't it? In the midst of suffering, you feel firstly isolation, that you walk the road alone, that you're in the dark night of the soul, that yes, friends are with you, but ultimately they fail to have perspective. They can't know it internally. They can't experience it personally. Specifically if they haven't walked the road, specifically if they're not on the edge of what possibly could mean death. The mortal reality, the existential problem of every person. You experience isolation. And from that isolation, there's a concern of fear. And very often, even on the hearts and on the lips of Christians, there is the comment, I feel that God has turned his back upon me. And I want you to hear this. Jesus can relate to you. In the moment of his agony in the garden, Jesus knew what it was to be abandoned by men, forsaken by friends, as he anticipated becoming the only truly God-forsaken man. In the midst of your suffering, Christian Jesus knows your pain and he cares for you more than any other man informed with the perspective of heaven and the fullness of humanity. A suffering son who was our savior. In verse 36, we see the submissive son. As you press on, we have here recorded for us the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he's just a stone's throw. Luke's gospel tells us from Peter, James, and John. And there he is on the ground and trembling in his agony on his knees and on his hands. He's hurting in soul, body, and mind, agonizing over the coming curse. And take note, what does he do? He prays. He prays. That's the great thing of this entire scene in the scriptures. It's not just that Jesus suffers, but that he approaches the throne of heaven. He prays. He bears his heart before the throne of God. And what does he say? Well, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. 
yet not what I will, but what you will. I want us to be careful with the prayer of our Lord's obedience here. I want you to see it in its parts because there's so much ministry for you and there's so much perspective on the cross. He cries out to his father. And I want to tell you as a father, there is some relation that I feel to this. Whenever my kids fall and scrape a knee, whenever a tooth comes out unexpectedly, they cry to me, Daddy! There's no way I can fix them or help them. But they still come to me for comfort. They come to me for help. And here in his prayer, in the midst of it, we see Jesus firstly in his sonship. He comes to the God to whom he has intimate relationship. You are my father. That's the first thing on his lips. I'm your son. He doesn't even have to say anything about the love of God just by calling him Abba, Father. Just by calling him Father, the reality hangs over the whole prayer. You love me because I'm yours. That's the ground upon which he comes to the Lord. And then what follows is a desperate prayer. What do I mean by desperate prayers? Maybe all of your prayers are desperate, but I would say that mine are divided a bit. Not every prayer is desperate. There are some prayers that are desperate in hard moments. They're usually short, just like Christ's prayer is here short. And oftentimes they're repetitive and they're pleading and they're in the moment. And I ask God, help me, help me, help me, help me. And that's what we have here. We have Jesus in the full knowledge of what he will experience saying this to the Father in heaven. All things are possible for you. All things are possible for you. You see, Jesus' theology about the person of God informs his prayer in his darkest moment. The sovereignty of God is what informs the way he prays. All things are possible for you. Your hand is not short in anything. You don't lack power in any way. You are a God who can do whatever that he wants. Jesus is praying on the character and the attributes of God. And that has one unique role, I think, in prayer. In that it comforts us. It reminds us of the truth of God's character. That God is in control, but he ordains all things that come to pass. And that he can change and he can help and he can do anything that he wills. All things are possible for you. In his desperate prayer, Jesus preaches to himself the truth of the person of God in heaven. And then he asks a prayer that the Lord ultimately answers with a resounding no. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And here, whenever Jesus says remove, it's in the form of the imperative. It has great weight upon it. You should hear this as a cry of the depth of the heart of Christ. Remove this cup from me. There's urgency and pleading in the prayer of Christ. Remove this from me. And you may not have any sense of what the cup of God has 
has meaning, but in the Old Testament and in the time of Christ, and I hope in your own minds, the cup has very much meaning. In the Old Testament, is, it's simply a symbol of God's judgment. A cup or a bowl of the wrath of God, it's a measured reservoir. It's a thing according to order. It's according to the law and the measure of the heart of God. It's exact. But notice it's a cup. And cups are, what are they? Well, they're instruments of drinking. It holds something that must be consumed. Something that must be drank until it is fully satisfied and the cup is empty. When the wrath of God is spoken of in this term, it, it means it's transient. The wrath of God must, in some measure, be played out. It has to move. It has to be carried out. And whenever Jesus speaks of the cup of God's wrath, he is speaking of a cup that must be drunk, of wrath that must be poured out, of a judgment that has to be carried out or God is not just. You can see this in the book of Isaiah 50, chapter 51, verses 17 through 22. You can see it in the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 25. Verses 15 through 17, in Ezekiel 23, 31 through 33, Habakkuk 2, 16, the cup of the wrath of God. And this cup, it has two impacts upon a man. It causes him to be a man looked upon with shame by other men. You see, temporal, earthly punishment, it always carries shame, doesn't it? Certainly the case in our day and age, and certainly the case in the day of Christ. And we see this eventually in what we call the humiliation of Jesus. As he is arrested, as he's mocked, as he's slapped even on trial, as he's beaten until bleeding, as he wears mock emblems of his royal authority and as he is nailed upon a cross on the high hill outside the city so that everybody might see him and despise him. The cup of judgment brings shame before men, but it also brings alienation from God. And Jesus here in these few hours is preparing to be the most forsaken man that has ever lived. That the full back of God might be turned upon him and no countenance shown to him. That he might bear the fullness of the curse of God without measure, the full of the cup poured out upon him. All of the wrath, all of the justice, all of the punishment for the sins of the redeemed sinners. Without an ounce of the light of the face of God. So when Jesus says, Remove this cup from me, he has a bright and clear understanding of what he's praying, and he prays it out of a sense of desperation. And if you know the gospel, if you know the end of the story, you know that Jesus prays for God to do something that he simply says no. 
the whole of the life of Christ, every request has been answered yes until now. And this is a request that ultimately God cannot honor because there is one purpose that the Son of Man took on flesh, one purpose, and that is that he might die for sinners, that he might drink the poisoned cup, that he might satisfy the justice of God. But that's not where Jesus' prayer ends. He says, amazingly, with a heart of obedience, yet not what I will, but what you will. Lord, please don't make me walk this road. Please, Lord, help me. Take this suffering from me. But God, you do what you will. You do what you will. I'll walk the road if it's your will. I'll walk where you want me to walk. I'll hang where you want me to hang. And in the second part of his prayer, it is the word of submission. It is the word of a son saying, Father, I'll do what you want. I'll obey every single word of the prophecies. I'll obey every single word of my life. I'll obey all of your plan for me. You do what you want with me. Even though I tremble and shrink from the agony that I'm going to experience. How can he do that? My desperate prayers sound like only one part of this. How about you? In desperation, the the quiet prayers of panic times. Oh God, please help me. Don't let me go through this. Oh God. Please, Lord, please, Lord, over and over and over, just as Jesus did four times over here. How could he have strength to know what God would do, to know the invisible, invisible effect of what's going to happen, and then simply say, you have your way. It is because he had faith. Faith that Abraham approached Faith that anticipated that even if God would put him to death, yet he would have life. Do you recall? Even if Abraham put his son to death, he had full faith that God could bring him back to life. This is what grips the heart of the Savior in the weakness of his flesh. That even if he suffers, even unto death, that God is good in these things. I want to say something to you Christians because I think there's so much confusion in the day in which we live and specifically within the church. At times when Christians suffer, it's a common thing to say to someone, well, you know, God has purpose in this and certainly he does. And sometimes whenever external counsel is given, it's given from a person that hasn't walked the road of suffering, that hasn't experienced the fear that makes the legs tremble and us fall to the ground completely terrified of death and sometimes we can even romanticize the suffering it's not what the New Testament does even whenever the apostles even whenever they rejoiced because they were accounted worthy to suffer for Christ it's not the romantic view of it they didn't relish and enjoy the pain of their suffering they didn't love it or 
anticipate it with great joy. No, they bore the weight of the attacks of sin upon them, just as Jesus is going to experience that. The suffering, it's terrible. That's why Jesus trembles. It's horrible. That's why Jesus cries out to God, remove this from me. It's not a thing to be desired. It's not a thing to be joyed in. And sometimes Christians can think, well, if I don't have that in my heart, if I don't feel that in the moment of my worst and mortal suffering, am I even a Christian? I don't look like that kind of Christian. You look like Jesus, who trembled at the prospect of suffering, who feared death, even though there was the assurance of life. And I want you to hear this, Christian, because if you haven't suffered like this, you will, you will, with the loss of a loved one or with your own mortal disease. You will experience this, and you need to understand that in this passage of Scripture, Jesus stands as a sufferer who despises his suffering. who desires not to bear it, but who in faith has given grace to walk through it. You need to understand that. Because if you try to glorify it, you'll be broken under it. But if you look to Christ in this moment, the Lord will give strength that you might bear up under it. Christians, it's okay to pray desperate prayers, to pray for God to relent, even prayers that God answers no, even when he does not retract his hand of suffering from you. It's okay to pray them. It's a normal thing. It's a thing that Jesus did. But never pray apart from faith that God is good. May it be that the Lord would give us all grace to do as our Savior did. You and I will never suffer as he did in Gethsemane, not at that great extent. But may he give us grace to simply say, God, I'm in your hands. To be like a child with a bruised knee, to simply say, Daddy, pick me up and hold me and help me to walk. Help me to go where you will. I trust you. I trust you against my deepest inclinations, against my deepest pains, oh God. I trust you. I trust you. Help me to walk in this. Help me to endure. Help me to look to you and to your purposes. May the Lord give us that grace. Verses 37 through 42, we see the disappointing disciples. As we've already noted, Jesus is with his friends. They're all there on the Mount of Olives. The whole of the remaining 11, Jesus took eight and left them at a different place and then took the three with him. And Jesus comes and interacts with the three, Simon, Peter, James, and John, and he gives them simple commands. Sit, watch, pray. Sit, watch, pray. Very simple. And I think Jesus' commands reveal to us that Jesus wants to have a time of undivided prayer and also he actually wants somebody to pray for him. Isn't that something? He wants another person to pray for him, to intercede for him, the Lord of glory, 
would like the intercession of Simon Peter, the foolish man, of James and John. Verse 37, he comes, he finds them sleeping, and he reproves Peter, and he says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. This scene repeats itself three more times, and you can feel the disappointment of Christ and the sort of things that he says. Jesus needed to pray. He needed to be undisturbed. But the thing is, is that he was within sight of the disciples. They could see him. They could hear him. They could hear him pray. That's why we have a record. They could hear him. And still, even in the midst of this, in this ancient and in this dark prayer meeting, what does he do? He looks around the table and he does, as we sometimes do, finds people sleeping. Right? That brings a little different light into the sleeping of the prayer meeting. Or maybe even the sleeping in a pastoral prayer that just goes too long, right? But you see, Jesus' instruction to them as he finds them, it's, it's, it's not just watch. No, he exhorts them to prayer themselves. But it's not just prayer in general. It's not even just prayer for himself. But it's prayer with wisdom about what they are going to experience. The last time we were in this passage of Scripture, in verses 31 through 22, uh, we read about... I'm sorry, in verses 31 through 26, we read about Jesus foretelling the falling away of all the disciples. You see, Jesus knows what they're about to undergo. He's going to be slain. The sheep are going to be scattered. It's going to be a simple thing. And whenever Jesus tells them to pray so that they might not fall into temptation, his encouragement is that their prayer life prepare them for what's coming. That there's almost a military preparation to their prayer life. That the things they can't see, he sees. And that he has wisdom that they will undergo trials. You see it? You understand? Yes, Jesus is praying for his own trial, but the disciples need to be praying for their trials. It's an important thing. You see, Jesus wants them in the hour where they ultimately betray him, where they ultimately fall away, to not then give themselves over into sin. To not be overwhelmed and to be taken over. And so Jesus says to them, watch and pray. And he does it three times. And what do you see again and again? A failure. Jesus finds them sleeping. He corrects them and rebukes them. He leaves and prays and he comes back three more times. Same again and again and again. Their flesh is weak even though their spirit is willing. And what does this say to us as Christians? Well, I think it's simply this. That we need to learn to watch and pray. Do you notice that Jesus doesn't dial back the command to the disciples? He doesn't lessen it nor weaken it even though they regularly fail. Jesus doesn't go, well, I I, I guess you're just, you'll just never get it. It's what I want you to do in an ideal world, but you just, you'll never do it. No, the command remains. 
Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. Watch and pray that you may not fall into sin. Friends, you and I need to cultivate a life where we are eager to be in prayer that God might give us strength for the testing of our souls. For the testing of our souls. So that as Peter has said, that the suffering Christ himself was an example for us that we might walk in his footsteps. We're invited to walk in his footsteps and his example and prayer in Gethsemane each day of our lives. May the Lord give us that grace that we might not be a disappointing group of disciples, even a disappointing group that he loves and redeemed. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you even for the suffering of your son. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand it. Lord, that these things would rest upon our hearts and our minds that we might be like him. And Lord, that in our worst moments, we may go to the only place of refuge for body and soul, and that is prayer. Oh Lord, that we might learn to be a people who would watch and pray. Father in heaven, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.